Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. <laughs> I do the same thing I told you that I never would I told you I changed Even when I knew I never could Know that I can't find nobody else as good as you I need you to stay Need you to stay I get drunk, wake up, I'm wasted still I realize the time that I wasted you I feel like you can't feel the way I feel I'll be fucked up if you can't be right Oh, oh If you can't be right, you do the same thing I told you that I never would. Told you I changed, even when I knew I never could. Know that I can't find nobody else as good as you. I need you to stay, need you to stay. I do the same thing I told you that I never would. Told you I changed, even when I knew I never could. Know that I can't find nobody else as good as you. I need you to stay, need you to stay. Frank Setapani with the CBS World News Roundup. Investigators don't seem close to finding John Doe number two, but the legion of lookalike second suspects picked up and then let go in connection with the Oklahoma City bombing is growing. Attorney General Reno says that's how police work goes. From Fox 25, this is the 9 o'clock news. I think it's very likely he was murdered. I'm not able to prove it. I have, I have temporarily classified the death as undetermined. You see a body covered with blood removed from the room, as Mr. Trent Adu was, soaked in blood, covered with bruises, and you try to gain access to the scene and the government of the United States says, no, you can't. There are questions about the death of Kenneth Trent Adu that will never be answered because of the actions of the United States government. Whether those actions were intentional or whether they were through incompetence, I don't know. It was botched. Or worse, it was planned. Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find the No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major all pocketers and Aussie as well. And I see uh, Bonghorn Langhorn in the chat. He says, we back, baby. And that's right. It's been a long time since so we've done an OKC episode. And here we are, part eight. We're finally covering uh, the Trinity stuff, uh, Kenneth, and, you know, kind of going to the Jesse stuff as well because he plays a big part in this. So I'm excited. And uh, with that, obviously, you guys, uh, I'm sure you know who I have as a guest. If you've been following along, uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's your first one. Uh, not a bad one to pop in on the first one. Uh, but uh, my guest today will be Richard Booth. Uh, I do want to, like I said, I mentioned that was my patrons. Right now, it's the only patron-only stream right now. It'll get released in a few days. Usually, it's about a week later. But due to the schedule, this one's going up a little bit earlier. Uh, if you want to be able to have access to those early things, you can go to patreon.com. No way, Jose, 2020. Uh, the lowest level is two bucks, highest level 20. 20 is my sponsors. My sponsors are Mikel Thorpe, the expat money show. And then Jeremy has an Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop. So that's raising liberty. Uh, then I also have Toad, who's my co host on Tower Gang. 
Uh, you can follow him at Tower Gang Code. You can also f- ch- uh, check out the Tower Gang podcast. Uh, I de- definitely ch- uh, suggest you check that out. But I will warn you, that's offensive comedy. So, uh, you know, if you go there and you're offended, I, I don't know what to tell you. I warned you. Uh, it is what it is. That's, a, that's, that's comedy. I don't want to explain that to you. But I also have uh, I have Zach Overacker at Z-O-V-E-R-C-K on Twitter if you want to follow him. Uh, and yeah, like I said, we're doing OKC. I'm looking forward to it. Also, toplobster.com. You can get my merch there. You can get this Terrence Eke didn't kill himself shirt as seen on Timcast. Uh, if you guys, I, I wore that on there. I got to get a couple little blurbs out, which is, you know, a little bit more than I expected. So I was happy for that. Uh, you know, I was hoping to get more, but you know, it is what it is. You get in what you can. Uh, either way, it definitely opened a lot of people's eyes. Got a lot of good feedback from that. And it was uh, really exciting for me. And hopefully I get to do it again. And with the nature of this show, I mean, if I go on again, I very well may be wearing a Kenneth Trinity and kill himself shirt. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, I don't know. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I get another opportunity on some sort of sort of sort of large platform like that. But we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. But with that, let's go ahead and get my guy in here, Richard Booth. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, how you doing? Hey, pleasure to have you back. It's been a long time. Been looking forward to do another one. Been looking forward to cover this as well. Um, so I, I, real quick, if you could remind people who you are, what you're about, let them know why they should uh, actually listen to you when you uh, talk about this stuff. Uh, go ahead. Absolutely. So, yep, for anybody who has not seen an episode before, my name's Richard Booth. I primarily research and write about the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, people can find uh, my essays on uh, two places. Uh, well, three actually. Um, my Substack, richardbooth.substack.com. Um, also on the Libertarian Institute website, uh, which I had an essay published uh, just this week. And in Garrison Magazine, Garrison, the Journal of History and Deep Politics. Um, and I've been researching the Oklahoma City bombing for number of years now. And what I primarily am known for and what I've done is I took a great deal of uh, research materials, which would consist of uh, about 1,400 newspaper clippings concerning the bombing, uh, court records, FBI documents, Secret Service documents, a bunch of documents relating to the case that I had amassed during my own research phase. And I put them all on the Libertarian Institute website where interested students or researchers or journalists can go and access this material so they can have uh, at their disposal uh, some of the tools they need to do uh, background research. And that's my whole thing is getting this information out into the hands of other people and getting it out to other researchers. And so, yeah, that's basically my thing. And uh, uh, essays essentially is what, what I do now the most. And I, like I mentioned, I had one on Jesse Trinidad's FOIA lawsuit that came out on the Institute this week. And so what I wanted to talk about today was just a little about the Kenneth Trinidad's story uh, as a preface to talking then about Jesse Trinidad's FOIA lawsuit and kind of uh, where things are on that right now. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, before we get into it, I did want to start with uh, one of the uh, perks of being a patron is you get to uh, ask questions for the guests uh, prior. You can do it in the live chat if you want, or if you aren't able to make it, you can do it to the, this is a $5 level, just so people know. Uh, there also, you can let uh, put comments in it. Someone asked me ahead of time to ask you, 
What does Richard think about the new info that Wendy found that Jolly on West actually visited Tim after being arrested, but before trial? This is from my uh, my uh, my sponsor, Zachary Overacker. Very good question. So this is something that actually I found out about in August of 2022. Uh, Wendy Painting called me and we had a very long, about three hour discussion uh, in August. And at that time, she shared with me uh, what she had learned. And at that time, you know, it asked me, you know, don't don't broadcast this right now. Uh, so, you know, I didn't. Um, and then a little little after that, in the fall of 2022, when she was talking about going on program to chill, uh, she was saying how she was going to drop the Jolly West info on there. So um, I figured, okay, well, we'll let, I'll let her do that and hear, you know, kind of what information she wants the public to know uh, versus what other information she might have that she's withholding uh, for her book. And so having said that, uh, I don't know precisely what she said on the show. What I do know is she, she probably did confirm uh, that Jolly West did meet with Tim McVeigh and that it is confirmed. And I know that she does have sources on this. And I know um, the most I can say is the, these are credible sources who would be in a position to know this. And I know that she also uh, is the kind of researcher who would uh, verify the information that, she, that she, she has been given. And so I think we'll find out probably even more uh, than what she uh, revealed on Program to Chill uh, in her second book. So I would just urge people to, you know, definitely get that when it comes out. Keep following whatever, uh, you know, if she goes on Program to Chill again or, or, you know, talks about it on her Twitter or whatever, um, pay attention there because she, I know she'll have more to say. And I think it is a very interesting new revelation. I was excited when I heard about it in August. And uh, she did tell me, I, you know, okay, you can talk to this person about it. And I, there was a person that I did talk to about it. Um, and we were all uh, pretty surprised and uh, found it to be a very interesting new development. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting. It was already before, like we have talked about this earlier in this series and it, there was already some weird uh, MK Ultra connections. I know, uh, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, The previously before this information was released, we already knew, uh, at least according to some sources, I mean, obviously, like, no, no, it's a matter of, like, what do you know? It depends on the sources. But, like, we seem to suspect before that the, the status was prior, uh, what we knew, seemed to know, was that um, Jolly, Jolly West did, uh, was sort of in, in, in the mix, but he wasn't supposedly, there was nothing confirmed about a connection with him at Vey, but there was Correct. connections where he interacted with survivors to, for like kind of to help with trauma, quote unquote. And then also there was supposedly someone who was a MK ultra a scientist or a, of some sort. Uh, I don't know if he was necessarily a protege of Jolly he West, was. but okay. So yeah. a protege, protege of Jolly West that, uh, you know, he was basically confirmed to have interacted with McVeigh. So there was already uh, weirdness there, but now it's gotten even deeper. Because for those who are in the, in the know, uh, Jolly West seems to be this character that shows up in a lot of major uh, things. Like he, he's the one who uh, 
Uh, I believe, maybe I'm wrong on this. I'm not as well uh, versed on JFK, but the, one of the big things he met with Jack Ruby. Yes. And, and there's other weird things with him. And then obviously just the stuff that's been confirmed with MK Ultra and his work there is already just enough to be like, whoa. But then, the, then you add in the fact of, Anytime there's this major intrigue, especially things that seem to have weird Fed connections, Jolly West is always somehow weirdly in the mix. It, it almost never fails. He is the top MK Ultra psychiatrist, like the top spook. So you're right. We had suspicions before. We knew he'd been meeting with a Jolly West protege. That was on record. Uh, but if you have him meeting with Jolly West, who, you know, this is a guy who, when he went to go interview, Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was perfectly sane and normal. And then once Jolly West got a hold of him, all of a sudden now he's bonkers and out of his mind. Um, that's a whole nother rabbit hole to look into. But suffice to say, um, Jolly West meeting with Tim McVeigh is uh, no small bit of news. That that That's a big deal. Um, and so I look forward to learning more about that and seeing what other details may be uncovered all right awesome uh i did read in your some of your notes you sent over me prior that it seemed to be there was something you want to address if someone had asked you about before you get into that i do want to let people know that me i mean i have my at right there at tower gang jose uh, richard booth i believe is at uh, booth underscore okc if you guys ever have questions uh you know contact one of us i mean preferably richard because he's actually the guy who would know this stuff well but I, if for some reason you forgot richard's at and you know mine you feel free to contact me i will put you in contact with richard or ask him myself or whatever or we can also if it's something that's intriguing enough we can address this on future episodes if they are them so you know because uh, for me and you i know the big thing is about getting this information out so if there are questions you know we're all about answering them uh, so, you know, those are always, um, you know, we're, the door is always open. Uh, I try my best. I mean, uh, sometimes my DMs are flooded, uh, you know, especially recently with, you know, after like Tim Cass, it's kind of settled down now. So, you know, the, it's wide open now, but uh, there was a minute where it's like I couldn't keep up, but I can now. Uh, so, I mean, doors always open. I know Richard's is basically the same way, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you go, Richard. I mean, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I read your notes wrong, but it seemed to be there was something you want to address before we got into it as well. Yeah, I had an interesting question that was posed uh, to me by one of our listeners, and it was something I kind of wanted to talk about because it plays into some of the things that we're going to talk about here on today's program. And so um, one thing that a, a, a listener had asked me is they were talking about, okay, well, you know, in the past you'd talked about how we think John Doe 2 uh, was a Fed. And so, you know, if we think he's a Fed, um, then how is it that, you know, Ken, Kenneth Trinidou was suspected of being John Doe too? How did that happen? How could that happen if he was a Fed? And so one thing I wanted to talk about basically is like the reality of an FBI investigation versus like the, the conspiracy view where someone views like an organization like the FBI or the CIA, they, they, they take this view that they're like a monolith, like everyone in the organization is like in on a massive conspiracy. Whereas um, the reality is what you see here is in the Oklahoma City bombing investigation, for example, you have, say, at least a thousand agents involved in the investigation. And among those, the vast majority of them are what you call street agents. These are agents who are assigned leads. Their job is to track down those leads, to interview witnesses, 
to follow the leads wherever they may go. And those agents, those street agents, the vast majority of which, they don't know anything about, for example, PatCon. Um, I would say the people in the upper echelon of the investigation, would it would probably be a dozen or less who would actually be aware of anything like PatCon or would actually be if John Doe 2, for example, was a Fed, a very small number of people would be aware of that. And so what they would have to be dealing with is they will have these hundreds and hundreds of street agents who are actually following the leads and trying to figure out who this guy is. And so they have a dilemma on their hands. They're going to need to find a way to tell those street agents that, oh, this is just a mistaken identity. You don't need to track these leads down. I mean, they can even say you know, when you're in the bureau and an FBI agent has said this before, when you're in the bureau and you're told to do something, you just do it. So they could be told, stop investigating John Doe too. But some of the savvier agents, the smarter agents who really may, might be good guys, they're gonna kind of question that. And they're gonna say, well, why are, why are they doing that? And they might actually ignore that and continue to follow some of their leads. And so that's why they have to come up with something like a cover story to say, oh, it's a mistaken identity. That's just as much to mislead the American public, just as much as it is for that. It's also put in place to mislead those street agents who really want to find out who this guy is. And so the main comment I kind of wanted to address was just that you know, the FBI is not a monolith. It's not like there's this conspiracy where everybody who is involved all knows, they all know that these details were in fact, it's probably it was a very small number of people who would have known about a sting operation or known about informants inside the operation. You know, maybe the special agent in charge of the field office that was running, um, the uh, sting operation, you know, that guy and his immediate superior, uh, somebody like John O'Neill in the terrorism section or somebody like Bear Bryant in the National Security Division. These would be people who would know. But for those agents whose job it is to do things like interview people who they think are John Doe 2 or interview people who match the description, um, they're going to continue doing their jobs. And they you know, really are going to want to try and find out who this guy is. And so you very easily can have a scenario by which you've got uh, John Doe 2 as a Fed. And then at the same time, you've got agents who are, in fact, investigating people. And we know this happened. We know that multiple people, for example, who had the name Robert Jacks were hauled into the FBI and questioned because they, uh, this Robert Jacks character was like a kind of a John Doe 3 when um, they investigated him for five years. And we know that uh, a guy named, a male named uh, Ray Jimboy uh, was thought to be John Doe 2. And he was, uh, they put surveillance on him. And they even had the special agent in charge of the Oklahoma City field office, Bob Ricks, personally handling the surveillance of Ray Jimboy. And so you sh it just show, goes to show here that you have street agents up to it, including special agent in charge in Oklahoma City, still investigating John Doe 2 figures and suspects. And so that's just kind of something I wanted to explain because I certainly understand where someone's coming from when they're saying, well, if he's a Fed, why would they think this other guy was him? But when you kind of understand how the whole thing actually works, um, you can see 
how that, you know, how that would happen. Yeah, it actually uh, brings to mind a, a, a kind of the point I want to get at is like the Intel community in general isn't a monolith. And I actually, it was funny, it was like kind of a Twitter exchange I got into the other day. And it was uh, someone was, it was Jack Basobic. Someone, there's, it had to do with him. And someone was going on about what a great uh, decorated individual he was. And just for curiosity, I looked into his past and I realized he was an O2 with seven years in the reserves. And he, he so it was like, for me, immediately with being 11 years at duty, and he was Intel. And so I was kind of like, I get how people could draw conclusions like military intel and be like, have this grand idea of what he is. And like, for me, I see that and I go, this is probably some guy who wrote a desk and really probably didn't really even excel that well because O2 is a a rank they usually give to you, like just for existing. And in seven years, it's not even like record time or anything. So, and it's like, and it's reserves. And, and and I've and for my interactions in the military, I've met Intel guys in there, and almost everyone I met was a desk nerd of some sort. There was some guy who sat at a desk, and they collect, they looked over different information, and they sent it to this person, to that person, analyzed this, did that. And I, I'm not saying that to downplay it. I'm sure there's a lot of skill that goes into that. But it, and I'm sure it's probably the same way in like the FBI and CIA that the probably maybe even the bulk of them are people who are just sitting at desks and stuff. So uh, it, it is this idea that it's a monolith. It also applies to like the military. Just because the guy was in the military doesn't mean he was out there shooting hajis. That's not how this works. The majority of people don't even see combat in the military. So it, 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 same idea. None of these things are a monolith, and you can never draw a conclusion simply. Like there's nuance to everything, and. I'm sure a Fed uh, that's been spent time in the Fed could look at some other Fed's record and draw conclusions, just like I could look at Jack Posobiec's uh, one and draw reasonable conclusions. I could be completely wrong. Who knows? Maybe he was like John or uh, uh, kind of like Jack Reacher doing some stuff like that. I don't know, uh, but like I kind of doubt it. Looking at his, his supposed record, so uh, it, it, that is a, a good point to bring up. That n- none of these are a monolith, and there, there's a whole lot more to it. Uh, these crazy things we're talking about are more of a uh, a, you know, a handful or, or, or dozens of people that are kind of uh, working on specific things. Uh, but I guess with that, we'll go ahead and get into what we came here to talk about today. Uh, and I guess the best place to start with is Kenneth trying to do, because that's kind of what leads into the rest of all of this. Absolutely. So what I'd like to do is just kind of set the scene um, at the time that Trinidad came across the border from Mexico to kind of uh, give you an idea of where things were at in the uh, OK bomb investigation. So at that time, um, FBI, uh, well, for example, I'm going to read some material here that came from April 28th, 1995, Los Angeles Times. And in this LA Times report, it said that the FBI believed the bombing was the work of a group of four to five people. They said that uh, they were investigating a group that was robbing banks to finance acts of terrorism against the United States government. And that later, it, it come to find out, that group was called the Aryan Republican Army, and they were indeed robbing banks to finance acts of terrorism. But in the early stages of the investigation, the first few months, there were a large number of street agents and people on the uh, investigation who were, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> looking into that. And so they went as, so far as to, they were actually mapping out um, T- Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols hotel stays on a map and uh, mapping out where the ARA robberies had happened to see if there was any crossover. Uh, they believed that there were some robberies 
that this group committed uh, that McVeigh was involved in. And they actually uh, analyzed footage uh, from one of those bank robberies to compare it to uh, pictures and footage of McVeigh to see if it matched because the the uh, description and the sketch of this robber looks very much like McVeigh. And in that case, actually, as it turns out, the FBI destroyed that videotape, uh, which is uh, not uncommon. The FBI loves to do two things. They love to fabricate evidence and they love to destroy evidence. And this case is no exception. So that's kind of uh, where things were at the time Kenneth Trinidou uh, crossed the border from Mexico uh, to the United States. This was in the summer of 1995, I believe in August, and uh, he was coming across the border from uh, Baja, uh, California. And uh, what happened at that time is that uh, there was this uh, uh, nationwide manhunt for John Doe number two going on. And this manhunt uh, said that John Doe two would be driving a brown pickup truck. Uh, he was believed to be in Canada or Mexico. His physical description was five foot eight to five foot nine, powerful build, uh, dark skin, dragon tattoo. Um, Kenneth Trinidou matches all of that. In addition to that, uh, when he's going across the border here and they run his identification, uh, they see, they would see uh, that he had violated his parole which was basically uh, he was on parole and uh, he, he was drinking beer, which you're not supposed to on parole. And he had done that and he had not seen his parole officer because of it. So it was minor, very minor. However, his criminal record would have shown that he was on parole for bank robbery. So you've got bank robbery, you've got the same vehicle, you've got the same body type, he hits every single point on the John Doe 2 uh, physical description. So even though his parole was in San Diego, the judge who had him on parole was in San Diego, his parole officer was in San Diego, he was then transported to Oklahoma City to the Federal Transfer Center in Oklahoma City. And he, uh, he arrived there on, I want to say it was, uh, he arrived on August 18th of 1995 at the Federal Transfer Center. On August 19th, he talked to Jesse's wife on the phone. He was fine. You know, he's doing well. I uh, talked to Jesse on the phone. Uh, Jesse said he was very upbeat. They talked about the legal strategy. Okay, we're just going to, you know, go to court for this minor violation. We'll take care of it. You may need to serve a little bit of time month or two, something like that, nothing big. And he was fine. He was very happy. He had just had a son, Vito, and uh, he had, he'd been, he married his uh, sweetheart. Life was great. He had a job. Uh, he was very happy. And when uh, he spoke to the family, he was not, you know, upset, not down or anything. And uh, what happened here is very unusual. Um, the following day after the 19th, on the 20th, uh, he was moved to the uh, special housing unit, the SHU, which is where you, you send people who are to be in protective custody. And then he was found dead a day later on August 21st, 1995, in the Federal Transfer Center in the SHU. 
And when you begin to look at what happened immediately following the death, and then following, uh, following that, how the Bureau of Prisons and how the FBI and how the Department of Justice treated this case, it becomes immediately apparent that there is a high-level cover-up that's going on. Uh, first of all, for example, the uh, Bureau of Prisons immediately tried to cremate the body. Uh, they they call uh, Jesse and they say they want to cremate the body, and he says absolutely not. Uh, the, they call then the medical examiner and they try to cremate the body through him, and he says no, the family has to make that decision. So there there seem to be um, um, very interested in, in destroying this evidence right away. And in addition to that, they also get in there and they clean the cell immediately. They clean up the crime scene. They completely destroy the crime scene by cleaning the cell unheard of. This never happens. It's always an investigation. Things like that didn't happen in this case. And so that's just kind of where things begin. And they just kind of get worse uh, from there. Uh, what we found is that the uh, the logbooks, which would have shown whoever went into the shoe to visit Kenneth Trinidad's cell, uh, disappeared, or the pages of the logbooks disappeared. The cameras, which would have shown anybody who went into the shoe, uh, also all of a sudden malfunctioned. Of course, they work normally every other day, uh, but the day that this man uh, is murdered, uh, in federal custody, of course, now the cameras don't work. And we know, obviously, that's a lie. Uh, when the camera malfunctions, that's an excuse. Uh, just, just uh, you know, it's no less mysterious than the logbooks disappearing. We can tell what's happening just here. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's just the same. Yeah. Um, and then also, we find that the uh, crime scene photos completely disappeared. This would be both Polaroid and 35 millimeter photos that were taken of the crime scene, uh, those completely disappeared. So when Jesse, uh, when, when he um, uh, had a grand jury impaneled to investigate this, and when there was a medical examiner's investigation, neither the grand jury nor the medical examiner were able to view any photos of the crime scene because they, they mysteriously disappeared. And Jesse did not get those until several years after the grand jury had returned a no bill, which is basically saying we're not finding any malfeasance here. And uh, not until after the medical examiner had completed his investigation. Um, so, but then if you go and you do look at these photos, what you can see is just a horrible bloody mess. There's blood all over the cell. And in fact, when the medical examiner went in there many months after uh, the murder, because they wouldn't allow him even into the crime scene for months, he goes in there and he does a luminol test, which is a test where you can tell if there is presence of blood. And the luminol test lit up the cell like a Christmas tree. There was blood everywhere, and you can see that in the pictures. In the pictures, it's very obvious. If this person killed himself, I mean, he must have used a chainsaw or something. It's how much blood there was here. Uh, in addition, there was also took notes blood. from Yiki. <laughs> yeah, just like, like with Yiki, yeah. how do you saw blood all over his vehicle? Same thing here. You know, just an abnormal amount of blood. Um, what you have happening here is clearly a cover-up uh, of a murder. And I think Jesse was able to prove that. 
what he did is he he uh, he was able to get <clears throat> the grand jury uh, testimony of uh, some of the guards in this case, and he uh, deposed these guards, meaning he had them under oath and was asking them questions. And three of them folded, meaning under under oath they admitted that they lied to the grand jury. And so he has them admitting that they lied about having found Kenneth Trinidou hanging in his cell, that, that that's not what happened. It's impossible. And so Jesse thinks, OK, good. You know, I've got these guys for perjury. I'm going to go to the U.S. attorney and I'm going to tell him we got perjury here. I'm going to recommend perjury charges. I'm going to report this, you know, these crimes. And what's amazing here is the Department of Justice actually went to a uh, federal judge and they got just like that. They got an order from a federal judge to uh, basically prevent Jesse from reporting the, the, the perjury or the reporting these crimes to the U.S. attorney. And so he was unable to even go and file any charges or report them for perjury. And that's unheard of, according to Jesse. Yeah. But we just see a list of yeah. things in this case that are unheard of, you know. And so th this is what happened. Kenneth Trinidou was murdered. He was killed in the shoe. And what you can tell based upon the cover up, well, you have high level people at the Justice Department who are allowing things like evidence to disappear, um, allowing things like uh, perjury, allowing things like a, uh, an inspector general's report to be sealed from the public, which uh, Jesse said is, is like the only time he's ever seen where an inspector general's report has been sealed. Uh, in the case, it's, it's a case not related to national security. He's never seen that. So when you see things like that happening, that tells you that it's more than just a simple matter of some corrupt prison guard who beats somebody to death. If that were to happen, they're going to hang that guy out to dry to show that, look, we're we're a valid institution. We're not corrupt. But the scale and the magnitude and the level of corruption that we see here speaks to the fact that it's obviously someone high level within the federal government that they're protecting. And to my mind, that means that I believe they were I believe they're protecting the FBI. What I believe happened here is that a couple FBI agents in Oklahoma, part of the OK bomb investigation, went into the shoe. They had guards with them. They carried out an enhanced interrogation. They believed that this person was one of these bank robbers. They believed he was involved in the bombing and they tortured him to death because they were expecting through enhanced interrogation to get the answers they wanted. And when they didn't get them, they just became more and more violent. And ultimately what it led to is you, what you can see in the, the photos, which is a, a zip tie uh, flex cuffs around his neck. Um, that, that choked him. It, it basically, he was suffocated to death and he had his hyoid uh, bone broken and blood vessels in his eyes broken, which is all consistent with strangulation. So I believe that's what happened is that he died during an, an interrogation that was carried out by the FBI. And the level of cover up that you see here is only the kind of thing you would see if they are covering up crimes committed by federal agents. If it were just the guards you wouldn't see this. And so that that's really what I think happened with uh, <clears throat> with Kenneth Trinidou. And another yeah. thing I want to mention here is what they tried to what they did to the family. It was just so it was sickening. They actually 
um, fabricated evidence in this case. They took a phone call uh, that was between uh, Jesse and his brother, uh, Kenneth, or I know it was uh, Kenneth and uh, Jesse's wife. And they took this transcript and they changed the words when they released the transcript. And in the transcript that they released, they have Kenny Trinidu talking about having AIDS, which, you know, I want to make clear, Kenny Trinidu did not have AIDS. He didn't, he, he didn't even say that. He said in the, in the phone call talking about being transferred from California to Oklahoma, he said, oh, you know, it's that jet age thing, talking about we're in the jet age now and they'll just fly you all over the country. It's no big deal. And they changed it from the it's that jet age thing to, oh, it's that AIDS thing. And they were at the same time, these federal prosecutors were pushing this story that, oh, Kinney had AIDS and that's why he he uh, he killed himself because he had AIDS. So it's just to add insult to injury with all these other things they're doing. They're now insinuating that he has AIDS or something and this is why he killed himself. And so just the level of deception here goes so far beyond what you normally see where they're even fabricating evidence. And uh, it's just... There's no other word for it. It's despicable. And this tells me that this, it's the FBI. You know? Yeah, they, they really do seem to think they are above the law. Like I'm sure you'll get into in, in a later part of this. Like they, they, they definitely they believe it's within their authority to lie and deceive. Uh, even under oath and in and, and any even in any context in which you think they shouldn't do it, you, even in any context, any normal person would think, well, OK, I get it in a normal day to day like they, they're part of their job is to be, you know, to uh, do uh, kind of deception and stuff like that. But you would think there are certain contexts that like, nope, that's not OK there. But no, basically just about any context you can think of, they will still keep up this veneer. I mean, they, once again, there's so many, uh, you know, parallels between this and Yiki. It seemed like Yiki was tortured. They did the same thing with, uh, you know, his wife or his yep. ex-wife. They tried to make it seem like they were having issues still and brought up a, an old restraining order that they never honored to begin with and had amiable relationship the whole time. And it, it, yeah, it's wild. And uh, stop me if you're about to go into this, but there were also at least three other deaths connected to this. Because I actually, you sent me over a, a a really good. I'll probably include it in the video description. A really great video that a presentation that Jesse put together. Uh, it was probably about. It seemed like I think it was like a 2011, 2012, like a decade ago, yeah. roughly. Um, and it, it it was great. And he he went into all that stuff. It was, uh, it, it was informative, and it was actually like really like emotionally powerful seeing that because you could tell even with it being you know almost twenty years after the fact, he still was getting choked up and you could you could hear the sadness and the anger in his voice and it still exists to, to existed to that day and i'm sure still to this day um and uh it, it was kind of beautiful and uh also kind of sad uh but it, it was good stuff but he did bring up in that how there were at least three other deaths a videographer who was going to testify for him magically died of a heart attack yeah. um and then also there were two inmates who claimed they heard uh, I believe they said something along the lines of screaming or sounds that sound like he was being tortured and they were willing to testify. And then one died of an OD and then one died of a suicide. Uh, and it's kind of convenient. I know the heart attack. I do want to say the heart attack one. I know a lot of people immediately assume, well, that's, I got it. Well, it's a heart attack. It's gotta be natural. There are poisons that, and stuff that will induce heart attacks. 
So, I mean, I'm not saying that happened. He could have been an ill, Ill you know, he could have been an unhealthy individual or an older individual and had a natural heart attack. It's, it's possible. Also, it's possible the other guy committed suicide. It's also possible the, the other guy uh, OD'd, you know, because people do drugs and that happens. But, you know, it, it just gets suspicious when there gets to be a, a stack of bodies at <laughs> a right. very, very convenient time. Uh, That's so, right. And yeah. One of these people you mentioned, Alden Gillis Baker, he was a prisoner who was positioned next to uh, Kenneth Trinidou, and he heard the torture and the beating, and he uh, was willing to testify. And what happened with him is, is what they do in the federal system is they take all the witnesses when things like this happen, and then they transfer them out to other uh, other prisons. They get the, they you know they they send them all out across the country so that they're not together, and as a, a sort of punishment. And so they did this with Alden Gillis Baker, and he um, he was willing to testify to say, yeah, this is what I heard, you know, point blank. You know, he's not getting anything out of it. He's not getting any sentence reduction. He's just saying, you know, this is the right thing to do. This is this is what I heard. This is what happened. And what happened there is Alden Gillis Baker started getting threats. And he contacted the the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he said, look, I'm tired of this getting getting these threats against me. I just want this to stop. Okay. And the U.S. attorney said, look, unless you change your story, nothing I can do to help you. And then not long after that, he's swinging by a bedsheet in his cell, you know, just like supposedly Kenneth Trinidou was. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was murdered because when you see the level of deception and the level of disrespect for law, and the, and the disrespect for human life and the corruption, um, things like this begin to not become so surprising. You get very cynical. I've become very cynical. I used to believe, um, you know, when I was younger, uh, that this kind of stuff was rare. Um, you know, that most people in law enforcement are good. Most people in the FBI would probably, I would say, would have been good people. But now I take the opposing view. I think in that environment, um, in order for you to succeed, uh, you naturally have to be corrupt, right? You've got to play ball in order to to uh, go up and and rank there and to uh, earn your chits and to get to a high level. You have to be corrupt, and so this kind of thing doesn't surprise me. You're absolutely correct, though. There was a you know, stack of bodies, and I believe Alvin Gillis Baker probably was murdered, and he would have testified, you know, as to what he heard. Um, and as far as the videographer goes, um, in his case, the FBI went to him about the so-called malfunctioning, one of these other malfunctioning cameras. This was a handheld camera they're supposed to go in and film the crime scene with. And uh, they took this camera to this uh, videographer, Norman Pearl, and they uh, asked him to take a look at it and tell, uh, give his expert opinion as to was this device working, uh, what's on the tape, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's interesting is that they did not want anything in writing. They only wanted an oral report. So again, showing because of how deceptive they're being, they don't want anything in writing in case it comes back in a way that they don't like. So this guy didn't like that. He didn't like the way the feds were being. And so anyway, he goes and he looks at it. And what he finds out is that the tape had been erased, had been intentionally erased, and that the recording device uh, the, the camcorder was absolutely working just fine. And he tell he calls the feds back and he tells them that, you know, this tape's been erased and this thing works fine. And the feds show up 
immediately at his door and they retrieve their equipment and they leave. Thank you very much. Nothing else. Don't want to hear from you. And so th this guy, Norman Pearl, calls up Jesse Trinidad because he was offended by the way that the feds treated him and he felt they were being deceptive. And he said, yeah, I will testify. And it's true that he did die of a heart attack. Now, in the case of the FBI, I don't really um, believe. Oh, you're muted. Oh, you're muted. Uh, sorry, about, sorry about that. Yeah, so I don't, I don't believe necessarily that the, the FBI would be capable of like inducing heart attacks or anything like that. I think it's more likely he probably just died of a heart attack. But, you know, you never know in this yeah. kind of stuff. You know, it's already too much that Alvin Gillis Baker was found hanging in his cell. You know, it's already too much that what they did to Kenneth Trinidad, when you look at the body and you look at the pictures and you see he was beaten from head to toe. He had um, he had bruises on the uh, inside of his armpits here where you like couldn't bruise yourself. Obviously, he was being held down. You know, he had bruises on the soles of his feet. Uh, his, his throat was was slit uh, slit. He had uh, this flex cuffs marks on his or somebody's put an actual zip tie around his neck. You know, and so when you see the level of brutality that was uh, um, laid upon him and think about the kind of person that could do that to someone who has done nothing wrong, um, that tells you that these sort of people have no they have no morals. They don't care about human life. They will mm -hmm. kill people. And it just shows you the kind of people we're dealing with with the FBI. And one thing I'd like to recommend to your um, listeners is uh, check out a book called Official and Confidential. This is a book about the history of the FBI, and it's a biography of J. Edgar Hoover. And if you read this book, you will see that the FBI from the very... Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Beginning when it was founded, throughout J. Edgar Hoover's entire life, was totally corrupt. They they fabricate evidence, they uh, destroy evidence, they frame people, they do black bag jobs. This has never been an organization that has been a good organization. It has always been an organization that is just fraught with, with criminality. Um, and so, yeah, folks, read that book and you'll get a good insight to why there is an institutional, um, I guess you'd say like an institutional rot in this agency. And it's because this is how it's always been. Yeah, I wish I could remember the specific poison. Like, I don't even know if it's necessarily a poison. Uh, I think it's actually a pretty commonly used thing in med the medical field that if that you use an, uh, enough of it, it will induce a heart attack, essentially. I wish I, I could remember. The, the only reason I – maybe nicotine. I don't know. I want to say it was adrenaline, or, but I might be wrong. 
because uh, I remember I only know this because my wife jokingly because she's worked in the veterinary field for forever. <laughs> she's jokingly said if I was ever going to kill you, that'd be how I'd do it. <laughs> so if uh, I die of a heart attack, flag, I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's joking, but uh, you know, if I ever die of a heart attack, uh, you know, in my young age, <laughs> it was probably the wife. <laughs> So at least wait to prosecute her until the kids get out of the house, though. So, but after that, you know, get go get her. <laughs> yes. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I wish I could remember because I know for a fact there is one. It's not even anything that exotic. So you know, uh, and I had compl- epinephrine. I th- someone in the t- chat. Said, I, th- I want to say it's epinephrine, but I might be wrong. I know I wish I could there, remember, but yeah. one that that if you person overdoses on it would not be easily detectable mm-hmm. is nicotine. That's one thing yeah. that's been used to to kill you know to kill people but there's so yeah there are ways to do it for sure and the the themes that we've discussed here people can find in an essay that i wrote about a year ago which i republished i previously had been unavailable it was only in a magazine but i put it on my sub stack about a week ago about the fbi's failures in the ok bomb investigation and so people can find some of these themes discussed in detail in that essay and they can also um, at the Libertarian Institute, find my uh, most recent essay on, on Jesse Trinidad's FOIA lawsuit, which he's been fighting this lawsuit specifically because, you know, he knows that his brother was murdered and he, he's never going to forgive anyone for that. And he's always going to fight. And he's just doing this to get uh, to try and get justice for his brother. Yeah, it was kind of beautiful in that uh, speech. He said, uh, and it made me think at one point, I think towards the end, it was kind of clearly kind of like closing statements. He said that like, uh, you know, I will I will fight this fight till the day I die. And I just thought there was something beautiful about that because it's like, I don't know, maybe he wasn't thinking about the time, but now there are people like you and me and, you know, others. There's like Booty, there's, you know, Wendy. And uh, so the, the fight will continue even after he dies. And I, I only hope that the fight can expand and, uh, you know, uh, kind of create almost like a spider web going out in different ways and different angles from all different. I mean, hell, I'm just a podcaster. I'm not doing the kind of stuff you do. But I mean, hell, I got to tell on Timcast to however many hundreds of thousands of people. Terrence Yeeke didn't kill himself. And who knows? Maybe I'll get another opportunity to tell him about Kenneth or Yeeke again. I, I don't know. And, you know, the, that creates rapport to where we may have a larger platform to do th- if there's information to talk about that stuff in the future. Who knows? So I don't know. It is, it is. I thought there was something beautiful about that. And I, you know, I hope, you know, people take that to heart and that like there's, you know, the million different ways to attack these things. And the, uh, the feds being in a centralized organization can only do so much. And us being the people, we are a decentralized organization of people that uh, once we become aware of what's going on, that we are far more powerful than they are. So I think there's some beauty in that. But um, with that, I guess let's, uh, I guess kind of getting to, I'm assuming you're probably going to start getting to how this ties into his fight and kind of maybe how this, how he maybe became aware of the OKC connections. Cause I know for a lot of people, they're probably like, okay, his brother died. I know right. he even said in his speech, he's kind of like, I didn't start out to like, he didn't even know about the OKC stuff initially. And then he kind of got pulled into it through this, just through happenstance. It even took him a while and it just seemed to be just kind of serendipitous that it even really like kind of caught on to some of the OKC connections. He, it wasn't something he was picking up at first. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if that was where you're planning on going with it next, but I'd assume. 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. He didn't have any idea that there was any connection. Um, I just preface it by saying, you know, at the time he was arrested, there's this manhunt. Well, of course, later, Jesse finds out about that. And there are a few things that happened that clue Jesse into the fact that it was possibly related to the Oklahoma City bombing. He actually received an anonymous phone call in, um, in the late 90s. I want to say probably, I don't know, 96, 97, maybe. Um, so he gets a call around this time and he, the, per, the caller says, I just want you to let, I just want to let you know, um, your brother was killed and an interrogation gone wrong. Um, he was suspected of being involved with a group that was carrying out bank robberies to finance attacks against the United States government. Um, they believe that this group was connected to the Oklahoma city bombing and, uh, it was a, an interrogation gone wrong. And at the time, Jesse didn't think a whole lot about that. He just kind of put it out of his mind and thought, well, you know, that's kind of far-fetched. But then he was contacted by a journalist named J.D. Cash. J.D. Cash reached out to him. And J.D. told uh, at that time told him all about the John Doe 2 investigation and the John Doe 2 description, um, that description that I read earlier. And, and so he tells uh, Jesse all about this. And that got him thinking, well, then... Uh, he sees uh, something that Tim McVeigh wrote in prison, and uh, basically he said that uh, Tim McVeigh said that when he saw Kenneth Trinidu's picture, he realized that uh, the feds probably thought that Kenneth Trinidu was Richard Lee Guthrie, which is one of the ARA bank robbers that McVeigh is thought to have been uh, connected with. Separately from that, uh, Tim McVeigh actually was able to get a message to Jesse Trinidu. And in this message, he said kind of the same thing that that anonymous caller said that, look, I, I believe your brother was murdered because uh, the feds thought that he was Richard Lee Guthrie, that uh, they thought he was one of these guys that was robbing banks to uh, fund terrorism against the United States government, which is almost uh, McVeigh implicitly confirming there's a link between him and this group. Um, and so, yeah, this is how he kind of caught on to it. So what he started doing was Freedom of Information Act requests. Real, real quick, I, I do, I, I, I didn't want to get past this before we mentioned it. Richard Lee Guthrie, Guthrie which maybe you were going to mention this later, he also coincidentally dies of a quote-unquote suicide. I believe this was obviously after the uh, trying to do, uh, you know, suicide, quote-unquote. Um, Not long, though. Yeah, not Very long after. Thereafter. So they found their guy and realized their oopsie, uh, it seems like. Uh, but he died, and it was right after. And I believe we talked about this in a previous episode. But he was, uh, I don't know, maybe it was Newsweek, or I don't know what, what entity he was. He had basically promised a tell-all L- to. And LA Times, I think. LA Times, okay. Uh, yeah. But yeah, he was going to blow, he said he was going to blow the lid off of it. And then he died too. <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know, he was just, talking yeah. to the LA Times. He was he had been captured for the bank robberies. He had started talking and cooperating. He had started writing a memoir about his time with the ARA robbing banks. And he told this reporter uh, that he had a couple of grand juries that he was going to start. That he was about to go talk to. And he said that the grand juries he was going to talk to uh, were to, he was going to be talking about acts of terrorism against the United States government. 
Okay. And so right after he has these phone calls where he's talking about this and where this is published in the newspaper, the Guthrie is saying this, he is found dead in his prison cell in the ex almost the exact same manner as supposedly uh, Ken Kenneth Trinidou and, and Alden Gillis Baker. He's found supposedly hanging in his prison cell. And, you know, these. what's interesting is a lot of these prison cells are designed specifically so that you can't kill yourself. And I actually talked to one of the suspects in the OK, OK Bomb case um, who was in a federal prison, and I asked him about that. And I said, would you have been able to kill yourself in this cell? And he said, absolutely not. He said, it had been impossible. Believe me, I wanted to. It was horrible, you know. And so, I don't know. I think that personally, I believe Richard, Richard Guthrie was murdered uh, in prison. And they have guards who are sympathetic to the Aryan nations. And this guy w would have been viewed as like a traitor to the Aryans. And, um, you know, it, it could easily be one of these Nazi guards who does it because the guy is a so-called traitor to the movement just as much as it could be the government. So you have multiple suspects here. Um, but you raise a good point in that he was found dead just like Kenneth Trinidad was, you know? Yeah. So. And once again, another body. It, it, there's yeah. so many bodies. And, you know, you brought up a point earlier about how, like, this has made you jaded. And I typically try to keep my politics out of this, but I think just to, for the context, I do – like before I got into this, like, I mean, I'm, I'm an anarchist, so that's kind of my, I'm an anarcho-capitalist for those who want the specifics. So I already kind of like, from a theory perspective already, it's kind of like, I don't really like the government. I, I think it's like not a justified institution. And then like, and I already knew it did evil things and it, it, it perpetrates things. But a lot of times, you know, like we kind of theorize it from a thing of like, oh, they're trying to do good things. And I guess maybe you could make a case for some of these people think they're doing the right thing. Sure. Maybe. Uh, but it's like, it gets to a level where it's just like so evil to where you're like this even for me shifted my perspective even further to like and I was already aware of like things like Northwoods and other stuff. I hadn't really gone too deep down the, this type of sphere of like these conspiracy stuff, but something about the Oklahoma City bombing and all the aspects around it. Once you really start looking into it, it just really real makes you realize like the the depravity of these people. So, yeah, I just, I just wanted to bring that because you're, you're right. There, there's just, it just is another level. <laughs> so it, it is wild. But I'll, I'll let you continue on with the, because uh, we where we left off with was, crap, we got sidetracked with Richard. I think he, Jesse yeah. was doing FOIAs on. Yes, FOIAs. Yeah, yeah, once he found out about the the Midwest bank bandits and he found he found all this information out. So this is a lot of it through J.D. Cash. So he started filing Freedom of Information Act lawsuits. And one of the things that he really wanted to get was the surveillance camera footage of the bombing. And this is something I talked about on a previous episode in uh, one of my uh, essays on Substack that you can read. I have all the receipts regarding that surveillance camera footage. And the reason Jesse wanted to obtain this is because the surveillance camera footage would be proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that John Doe 2 exists. And if Jesse can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that John Doe 2 exists, he now has much better footing to show that, look, 
my my brother was considered a suspect. He was considered to be possibly John Doe too, because right now you have the FBI saying he doesn't exist, you know. So he wants to get this surveillance camera footage. So what he does is he finds that uh, David Hoffman, uh, a writer, had filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit in 1999 that revealed that there are 23 surveillance tapes of the Murrah building. At that time, they could not be released because there were still uh, appeals pending for McVeigh and Nichols. So the judge left it at that, saying, you know, I can't do anything right now because of these appeals. But he did say that the FBI's pattern of deception may soon well end. Um, he, the judge in that case also had some choice or it's funny. Every time I read these court cases, the judges are always just savaging the FBI, uh, because of their behavior. Um, so that happened in the Hoffman case. So, uh, Jesse files his freedom of information act suit in 2008, asking for the surveillance camera footage. And one thing that Jesse said, um, that I think is worth noting here is he said that, um, with the FBI, you can one thing you can always count on is they will always lie, even when the truth would suit them better. They will still lie, and so one thing he did was uh, he he asked for in addition to the surveillance tapes he asked for some of these teletypes, and uh, the FBI came forward. Now, what's funny is Jesse had the teletypes already. He got them from Roger Charles. He had the teletypes. He knew that the teletypes said that there were informants at Elohim City talking about the bombing. He had them. So he, but he knows the FBI though. He knows they're going to lie about it. So he goes and he requests them. And the FBI says, "Sorry, don't have any." So what Jesse does is before he introduces this as uh, in the in the court, he goes and he knows the FBI would say that they were fake. So he goes and he talks to a former 20, 30 year FBI veteran and he has him sign an affidavit, examine the teletypes and say, oh, yeah, these are real. He examines them and he can tell from all the markings and everything they're real. So he puts together an affidavit saying they're real. So what happens when the FBI comes forward and says, nope, uh, we don't have any teletypes, nothing like that. Jesse says, well, here you go, introduces it as evidence in court. And the judge says, well, what the hell is this? FBI says, oh, no, that's fake. Jesse says, OK, affidavit. Here you go. Judge looks at the affidavit, says, okay, and now the judge is pissed. This judge is angry because now he has basically caught the FBI lying to him. And the judge judge in the courts do not like to be lied to, okay? So uh, they, this judge tells the FBI, you need to go back and you need to search. I want you to go back and do the damn search, you know, and come back to me with what you have. And so the same thing happens in the videotapes lawsuit. He uh, files his FOIA for the videotapes. They release to him a batch of tapes. All of them are edited. None of them show the bomb being delivered. None of them show anything before 9.02 a.m. Uh, none of them show anything that's described in the documents because the documents talk about the videotapes. They talk about what's on them and nothing appears like that on the tapes given to Jesse. So Jesse goes to the court and he says, you know, basically the same thing he said in his other uh, uh uh, the other example with the judge, he says, you know, that, that they did not perform an adequate search. And what he does is he introduces as exhibits at trial uh, probably about a dozen documents that Roger Charles gave him. They were all documents about videotapes. Which Roger, Roger Charles was a 20, 30 year veteran you mentioned earlier, correct? Right. Uh, uh, no, this that was a different guy. Oh, different. Uh, I think he, he was prior, right? Uh, well, the, the 20, 30 year veteran was just a guy who could attest that 
the teletypes were real because okay. he had worked at the FBI and he knows what teletypes look like. But yeah, so Roger was Charles like, was a prior FBI agent or something like that. No, right? no, not I, a, I he was a United States Marine. Okay. And a journalist, okay. and he worked on the McVeigh defense team. Okay. as an investigator i thought and he then, had fed connections for some reason i don't mean that to cast aspersions towards him i'm just saying that he because not all people are necessarily bad uh, i know like a lot of like the people that the crews i run with might say that but i mean it's it's more nuanced than that so i i thought uh, i thought he was kind of quote unquote well, one of the good ones for some reason well like like jesse he was a united states marine and he um he then became a journalist after his career in the marine corps mm -hmm. and he worked as uh an investigator on the McVeigh defense team. And what he did there was, is he obtained a great deal of documents from that case through that they were given to the defense team in discovery, which means these are documents that are not redacted because they've come through discovery. So he goes to Jesse and he gives them and says, here, here's a whole bunch of documents that are all about surveillance tapes that we got uh, at trial. And Jesse looks at them. And he says, well, hell, they didn't provide any of these to me when I did a FOIA, and they all fall squarely within the FOIA. So in court, Jesse goes and he introduces these as exhibits to the judge and says, look, here's one. Here's another one. Here's a 302. Here's one about this camera at the public library. Here's one about this camera at the Regency Towers. He introduces them all as exhibits and says these fall squarely within my FOIA request. The FBI failed to provide these to me. This shows they did not perform an adequate search. And he, he actually goes further than that because in his trial, he was able to uh, get these FBI agents under oath and elicit testimony from them. And through his testimony, what he was able to do was he was able to prove that the FBI did not search their three primary databases, which is called the Automated Case Management System, a system called ICM, and a system called ECF. And he was able to prove through testimony that the FBI did not search any of those systems. Now, the reason that's important is the judge in the case ordered the FBI to search all of the databases where it could be reasonably assumed there would be documents relating to this case. And they absolutely failed to do that. And so uh, he just in this case, he was able to prove once again, like we said before, that the, the FBI is just lying throughout the entire thing, just lying. Oh, we don't have it. Oh, um, well, we didn't find it because of this. It was just nothing but obstruction and lies which you can find in the Libertarian Institute piece that I wrote uh, that came out this week. It came out yesterday on the 28th. Um, and I go into a little bit more detail in there and actually link directly to the exhibits so the reader can click and look at the exhibits themselves. And they can also click and read the testimony if they want. Um, yeah, I did one... want to say that is a great piece. And I, di I did like how in the piece, and like you said earlier, that they will always lie. It shows how the, the piece does a good job of showing this isn't something that's specific to OKC. This is a commonplace thing. And I, I thought it was interesting because it shows the mechanism to which through which the feds essentially control information in all sorts of ways. Because this is not this is very common. And, you know, we're we're looking at a situation with Trinidu, uh Jesse, who is a experienced lawyer. Uh, I know we haven't gone to this part, but he essentially gets the uh, monetary means to be able to continue this fight and still 
he's having to push, 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 yes. push all the time into an extraordinary manner. And a normal per- the way FOIA is supposed to operate is, uh, you know, you send a FOIA request and you get it. And that's that. And it's supposed to be unless they have a reason. Otherwise, you get it. And uh, I mean, no matter what, I mean, pretty much unless it's something they don't care about at all, you, you they're going to drag their feet and do everything they can to not give you the information they want. And this applies to so many other aspects, uh, so many other cases. I believe I saw other, uh, I forget the specific uh, context in which it applied to. TWA is an example. I gave that as an example on how they withheld material there. And you're absolutely right, Jesse. What he has done, if if any other person filed a, a FOIA request, and had material withheld like this and had to go and, and file a lawsuit to get it, they would have had to have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars just to get the FBI to not comply with FOIA. Okay. Cause he still hasn't got them to comply. The only reason he was able to produce documents to say, look, I know you have these is because of Roger. Right. And so it shows that an average person would end up spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a lawsuit. They would not get the FBI to comply and they would have a judge ordering the FBI to comply and they're still not listening. And it does reveal what they do to hide documents and to hide things from people. And that would include lying under oath. You know, that would include uh, putting out FOIA releases that are intentionally that intentionally exclude from those releases relevant materials. And so it it is um, not, like you said, unique to the Trinidad case. Rather, the Trinidad case is an exemplar of how they do it, I think, in almost all cases. And he actually, Jesse, was able to find a previous uh, case where the FBI and uh, their uh, records integra- uh, records uh, division chief, David Hardy, uh, had misled the courts and lied to the courts. And when he was found out, uh, his attorneys actually tried to argue to the court that, oh, well, you know, we, we, get, to, we get to mislead the court. We're allowed to do that. Yeah. Yeah, they actually tried to make that argument. Of course, Admitted to perjury hold. and said, it's okay because we can. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he committed perjury and they're saying, oh, well, we'll judge. We're allowed to do that. We're the FBI. Yeah. You know. uh, so I didn't mean to throw you off track. I just thought that was important to show that this isn't just an isolated thing. And also the context of like how FOIA is supposed to operate. And then, you know, I know we've gotten a ton of information through this stuff from Jesse, but mm-hmm. it's because of Jesse and who he is and how this worked out. But I, I mean, if you remember where you're at, we, we can keep going. Cause I know there's still way more to tell. Yeah. So basically it was at the point where we're talking about how, um, Jesse was able to illustrate that they withheld documents that they did not perform the searches required of the databases required. Um, they did not, uh, search the databases, um, that they were supposed to have searched. And ultimately, through testimony of FBI employees and the documents that Roger had given him, Jesse was really able to prove this in court. And what we're what now is we're waiting on a ruling from the judge. And we expect, very much expect the judge, the judge's ruling, to be very similar to Jesse Trinidad's um, proposed findings of fact 
and conclusions of law. And that's a document he filed with the court where Jesse proposes, this is what I think the findings of fact should be. This is what I think the conclusions of law should be. And my article was largely based on that document. We believe the judge, when he issues his findings of fact and, and conclusions of law, will be almost a mirror of Jesse's because if you read Jesse's, you'll see it's all based on the trial testimony and it's all very logical and it is all based on the facts. And so we think the judge, he's a fair judge. We believe that he'll make that, probably make that ruling. And in the end of the piece, what we do is um, there's a whole list of recommended uh, reforms that we would like to see because uh, this is basically what we're saying is if we instituted these reforms, this would make it so the FBI was required to fulfill their FOIA obligations. And some of those things, for example, are um, tying their annual funding to whether or not they comply with FOIA. If you don't comply with, with FOIA and you want $11 billion, too bad. You're only going to get $2 billion, something like that. You know, we're going to put a monetary um, um, uh, like a penalty to it. And there's a whole list of uh, recommended reforms, and those all come directly from Jesse being an experienced uh, attorney, experienced FOIA litigator. He was able to provide suggested reforms that make sense based upon his own experience with uh, filing FOIAs and, and with dealing with the FBI with FOIA. And so I encourage your, your uh, viewers to go read the article and to, um, if people are interested in FOIA, you can read this article and learn the FBI's filing system so you know to tell them you can tell them which databases to search because I identify them there um, and you can learn a good deal from that and also um, take a look at the article I wrote about a year ago which is now on my Substack. it's called uh, the FBI's failures in the Oklahoma City bombing case um, a case study and deception and failure something along those lines. It's kind of a long title, but anyway, it's on Substack, released it, uh, I wrote it about a year ago. You can find that on uh, on there. And it, it hits some of these same themes involving things like FBI destroying evidence, fabricating evidence. Um, and it's very much not um, an aberration in this case rather it seems to be this is their normal pattern of behavior so anytime i see now see someone who's been like busted by the fbi i immediately think that well there's nine out of ten chance that they're innocent like with the whitmer people i think you know it's just made up you know just like with that there are like 12 informants and it was all completely made up Yes, you know, uh, I, I I agree. People should definitely check the article as well. I'll probably put that in the video description. I'll probably put that. I'll probably put the, I'll probably put the uh, the Jesse's presentation that he put on uh, about definitely. this whole thing. And uh, I, I believe you said you may drop some links because I can, I mean I don't want to make it too link having the video description, but uh, I have a master thread on my uh, Twitter page if people want to go check that out. I think you're you're going to probably drop some sources there. Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll drop so, some some links in in your on your Twitter page and your thread. I'll drop some links to the Trinidad case so people can click that to read more and learn more about it. Yeah, it's my uh, it's my pin tweet. Scroll down through it. It's a whole thread, and you get down to the Kenneth Trinidad part, and I'm sure that's probably where uh, where Richard will put that. Uh, if you scroll down all the way to the bottom, it's one of the last ones. It's a fairly long thread, but you can find it. I'll put a lot there. Uh, I did want to touch on, I don't know if you had much more you want to hit on, but I thought it was really interesting that 
Uh, I know the FOIA was one of the biggest aspects of this, but uh, Jesse kind of put uh, an attack on all fronts. And he did. He, he did a did criminal. He did uh, political. The FOIA, I believe, civil. Uh, I believe the civil is where he got the million dollars uh, yeah. that uh, basically enabled him to continue this. Which I I find that kind of funny in a way that he uh, they uh, it seemed like they almost did it in an effort of exas and, and sort of like borderline exasperation and also the hopes of like well maybe he'll just go away and all they did was enable him. <laughs> <laughs> to continue the fight for basically forever uh and uh, you know I, I think that's great uh, I, I don't know if you want if you can speak on the the different uh different the multiple fronts he attacked on because there's definitely some intrigue there as well i know the political front he attacked on there was definitely some weirdness there where he hit some roadblocks that seemed to be some fed involvement as well uh but but i'll let you go i mean i let you go on go just go ahead with that if you have anything off of there. Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, Jesse, he did say the way that you wage this battle is on multiple fronts. Like you said, you could do it on the criminal front. And he did that with getting the grand jury to investigate, you know, uh, cr a crime here. And unfortunately, in the criminal front, he did lose. And that's only because the grand jury that was investigating the case had all the evidence hidden from them. They had the crime scene photos hidden from them. So the people in the grand jury could not see that it was a cell filled with blood. So they didn't see the crime scene photos. They didn't see so much of the evidence that was important. Um, and they had people perjuring themselves before the grand jury. So what he did on the criminal front, he was not able, he wasn't successful with. However, he was able to then use material from the criminal front. He got a hold of the grand jury testimony of those guards. And then in the civil case, on the civil front, he was able to, under deposition with these guards, prove that they lied on the criminal case. And so he was able to use the material from one and the other. And on this, so on the, you're correct on the civil front, he did win, win uh, $1.1 million. Now the, the, the uh, Department of Justice said, we're never gonna pay you. And they appealed it. And of course uh, the, the court just, uh, you know, didn't agree with them, sent it back. They appealed it again, uh, court sent it back. And so finally on that third time, uh, the Department of Justice went ahead in, in 2008 and agreed to pay them. And uh, like you said, I, I think that, that they were just thinking, well, maybe now they'll go away. But like Jesse said in his video, he said, well, now we're just armed and dangerous because what he did is he took that $1.1 million and he created a $250,000 reward for any information leading to the people who murdered his brother. And by doing that, he ran that in the Washington Times, huge newspaper, ran it all over the country and other papers. And what he found is no one came forward and claimed the $250,000. Now, if this was a murder that was carried out by a couple of prison guards, one of those guards is going to snitch on the other to get that quarter of a million dollars. You know, that didn't happen. And what Jesse said was, well, the reason that doesn't happen is because you have people way up higher than you who are looking down on you. 
You know, like if you have, say, for example, the people who murdered Kenny Trinidou were a couple of FBI agents along with a couple of guards. You know, those guards aren't going to say anything because they know the FBI and the Department of Justice all the way on up are, you know, have their eyes on them. So he said that that told him a lot. And you're right. He used that money to continue to fund um, his research into this and to continue to fund uh, waging this battle. Uh, against the federal government for what they did because they will not um, atone for it and they will not admit to it and they won't come clean and they won't they won't you know ultimately do what's right and so they're getting what they deserve and you know and he like you said he said uh, that he wants to uh, you know wage it on the public relations front you know you do things like you recruit your local politicians he had Orrin Hatch who is on the judiciary committee and Orrin Hatch was going to try and bring this to be an issue before the Judiciary Committee. And the whole political thing happened there where it was blocked and um, the Department of Justice and the, uh, the head of the FBI at the time, Mueller, was blocking it every step of the way. Um, you do it by recruiting other people like, you know, like me, like myself doing that. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm doing this for Jesse, because I believe it's a righteous cause. And I'm interested in the Oklahoma City bombing. So, hey, I can agree on both of those things. And I'm happy to provide any assistance that I can. You know, he, you know, talks to journalists, you know, and provides them with information. So, like Jesse said in his presentation, he said, you ask me how long I'm going to fight these sons of bitches until I'm dead. You know, he said, because what he said was, um, are they ever going to, are they ever going to prosecute the people who killed my brother, no, never going to happen. But I can harm the reputation of the Department of Justice. I can harm the reputation of the FBI. And that, I think, is a cause I can get behind. Mm -hmm. you know? And we're at, we're at a weird point right now where we have the, uh, what is it, the weapons, weaponization committee right now is, yes. uh, going on. Uh, I mean, not that I really am all that hopeful that anything could happen. But uh, I got to say, I've been pretty heartened, uh, you know, after my appearance on Timcast. I've seen, I've been seeing all over online. I've been seeing in random places, Terrence Hickey didn't kill himself, just posted. It's like, I feel like I, we're almost on the verge of making it a meme to some extent. I've seen just like episodes just randomly on Timcast where people are dropping in the live chat with nothing yep. to do with it. Just Terrence Hickey didn't kill himself, Terrence Hickey didn't kill himself. And so I just, you know, I guess a call to action for people, like, keep it going, make it a meme. Just like, We're at an inflection yeah. point where this yeah. kind of material resonates with people, and I think you're correct, and, and I do believe that we have the opportunity to get this information to a new audience of people and not only get it in front of people like who might be working on the weaponization committee, but also to their constituents and to the people who watch shows like this, and that's why I do what I do. All I want is to get eyes uh, on the evidence because I'm convinced by the nature of how convincing the evidence is, I'm convinced that when people look at it, they, they're reasonable. They will come to the conclusion that there are others involved with Oklahoma City. They will come to the conclusion that Kenneth Trinity was murdered. And we have, we have the facts on our side. That's the, the, the good thing here is we have the facts on our side. And any reasonable person who looks at the facts is going to see that. And, um, you know, my... Uh, uh, my whole thing is just, you know, getting people to look at it. And so I agree with you. I think we we're at an inflection point and I'm hoping that we can uh, get more people looking at this and that it does become a meme and that more people will continue to tune in and continue to talk about this. 
Yeah, and uh, I guess I, that's probably, I can't think of a better place to end this unless you have something else to add to this, but I think we did a good job of covering everything here. Uh, but I did want to say, uh, I guess this like the last little sentiment I was kind of trying to express was thank you to everyone watching this. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, you, I think to some extent you guys presented me with this opportunity. Uh, you, you know, it's, and also thank you to you, Richard, as well. You've been coming along. I, this genuinely is like something that tugged at my heartstrings, brought me down this road. I, and I, I want to also want to say, keep going. Uh, keep, keep, like, uh, if you want to, I mean, I don't, I saw someone online got upset that I was hawking the, the top lobster t shirts. I don't, I don't get a penny from it. So, like, I don't care, that's, whatever. That's and even dumb, if I did, yeah. so what? But yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a, t a t shirt. You're not going to get rich off that kind of thing. That's all that's going to do is yeah. spread awareness. In fact, yes. I want to see a t shirt that has John Doe 2 on it. Yep. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I hope, yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to keep, I think, I genuinely think, I think, Nick, if I do get to get on, you know, Tim Cast or another large show, I think I'll probably do a Kenneth trying to do it and kill himself. Cause I think something about the, those words has like more meme potential. But, uh, you know, and then maybe later, like a John Doe 2 thing. I, you know, I know John Doe 2 is probably one of the best aspects so far as like rock hard solid facts, but so far as like meme and then like oh, right. hook, and then hook emotionally that didn't, the, the people being suicided just pulls people in. It and does. It, it, with something, and I know Yiki is like, uh, Yiki is definitely blatantly, he didn't kill himself, but, and also the same thing with Kenneth, but, in, in different ways, they both are very wild. In some ways, the Kenneth Trinity thing is almost more blatant than the Yiki one, even though Yiki is like, you just well, look it's because at we had the pictures yes. with, with Kenneth Trinity. Yeah. You know, if we had the pictures with Yiki, it would be just as convincing. All I, we yeah. have is the word that, you know, yeah. he was cut here. You know, we have the autopsy report, but pictures yeah. say a thousand words. So I totally agree with you. Anything. Uh, like uh, Kenneth Trinity did not kill himself. Terry Yankee did not kill himself. These are things that speak to people on a fundamental level. Yeah. And so I'd like to see more attention on that. And coming up in 2025, in what I'd like to do in April of 2025, is I'd like to go down there to the Oklahoma City Memorial in Oklahoma City uh, with, you know, myself, and maybe about 20 or 30 of our uh, our followers here and our fans and our friends and all of us sh uh, show up down there wearing a John Doe 2 shirt and kind of hold a silent protest. We don't have to cause a scene or anything, but we certainly could might be able to capture some attention, uh, some media attention or, or to create kind of a flash mob or a story, um, you know, to get eyes on the evidence. And so that's something that people should think about. And I, I was thinking about that um, a few weeks ago and thought that would be a great thing to do in April of 2025. And I know that some of our listeners um, have actually reached out to me and said, hey, I'm down to do that. They're in o Some of them are in Oklahoma and they're like, yeah, man, I'll be there. And so yeah. I've been be blown away by the people in Oklahoma that I've heard back from. It's that's yes. been really uh, heartening. Uh, people that have, you know, people that actually had direct interactions with Terrence and stuff like that, because it, it does mean a lot to me. Uh, that uh, you know that I was able to get his name out there, uh, you know, and uh, and it's I know in some senses Terrence is a more sympathetic character. I think there's something we something weirdly inspirational about that aspect too. That like although, and I'm not saying it at all in any ways that Kenneth was not a good person, but if you're if you just look at the basic facts of like it, an inmate is a less sympathetic character than a than a cop trying to do the right thing. 
It, it just, and it well, just at a superficial yeah. level, it yes. is for sure because you're talking about oh, he's a cop and he's saving kids and stuff, and that really is admirable. One thing though, I want to say about Kenny is that for me, for me, he's an inspirational figure because he's a a normal person yep. who beat addiction. You know, mm -hmm. I never had like a problem with heroin but I beat a problem that I had with alcohol mm -hmm. and I can understand a guy having a problem and messing his life up and then getting his life back together. Yep. And I see that and I'm like, yeah, man, I can relate to that. And so I can see kind of two sides to that coin. You got Kenny who is like a normal person. He's made He's some Vietnam mistakes. Vet. Yeah. Vietnam vet, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he had, he made some mistakes and he had some problems, but he had his, got his life back on track. Yeah, just had a kid, and, he had a newborn. Yeah. That's right. And so in yeah. both cases, though, what you're seeing are people who who, who basically were murdered and did mm -hmm. not deserve this at all. And no. I think all all people who who are going to be looking at this can relate to one or the other or both. Yeah, it's just it's just funny that like, it's not funny. But uh, the point I was getting at with with the thing is just the aspect of you would think at a superficial level that the thing that would really kick this off would be Yiki. Yeah, it was a sympathetic thing. But. You know, I'm sure the feds just thought, oh, there's just some inmate. You know, I'm just going to kill this, you know, whatever. We're going to torture him. That is what they him, thought. Whatever. And they then thought, you, it just yeah. so happened they killed the wrong person. You never know what the domino will be that will set things off. And I guess that's just kind of like, you know, once again, to inspiration to the audience of like, hey, keep pushing this because you never know what thing, what person, what platform, what whatever that sets it off. Because that r random inmate is, like I said, a superficial level being killed is what set their worst nightmare jesse trinidu upon them <laughs> so. that's right well see what they what they didn't realize here is that kenneth trinidu's uh, kenneth trinidu's brother was a united states marine mm -hmm. and one of the best damn lawyers in the country and uh this united states marine is continuing to beat the shit out of them he's just yeah. kicking their ass and he's not ever going to stop and mm -hmm. he had with him and roger charles another united states marine and so together they were just in a powerful combination. They were out for a righteous cause for justice. And uh, yeah, and, they, and and like you said, um, after, you know, Rod, Roger Charles, you know, uh, rest in peace, um, even after Jesse, you know, is gone, there's going to be a new generation of people who are going to continue this. And that's part of the reason I do what I do is I want there to be new students I, I need there to be new students on this case. And so that's my hope is that yeah. we open more eyes and get more people on this so they can continue this fight. Yep. Uh, yeah. That's what I hope for as well. I hope we can get as many people on it. Other people, other areas, people writing articles, whatever, of different media, what, whatever it is to just get to a, a inf like we're at this inflection point and I think it needs to be taken advantage of and it ties into so many other things. Uh, but I guess, yeah, like I said, we're, we're at a good point. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm feeling a little bit airy and kind of like emotional about this because it, it is really cool and it is really kind of beautiful. I think what's happening here, but, uh, if you want to go ahead and drop your plugs, we'll, we'll go ahead and get out of here. Yeah. So folks can find my stuff on Substack, which is richardbooth.substack.com. 
And uh, I have got an essay that I wrote about a year ago that I just posted on there about a week ago. People can check that out. And they can also find my article on the Libertarian Institute. They can find my archive at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And finally, you can find me on Twitter at booth underscore OKC. And I'll be posting uh, more material re relative to what we talked about today on Jose's page on Twitter and the uh, Kenneth Trinidad thread. Yep. And uh, yeah, this is the No Way Jose show. You can find me on YouTube, all the major all podcasters, Odyssey as well. Follow me on Twitter at Tower Gang Jose. Uh, you know, before we like, share, subscribe, share, share, share. Uh, I mean, even if you don't share my stuff, share, you know, one of Richard's articles, share Wendy's book, share something. Uh, you know, whatever it is you can that move stuff, whatever you think the proper medium is for the, the, the audience you're trying to give it to, whether it's an individual or a group, uh, depends on the thing. Not everyone's going to want to watch this entire series. Go share. Uh, Jinx's, uh, who was the intro at the beginning, Jinx's, he's, he's got his Twitter back now, Al Crack, at Crack Connoisseur. That's what set me down this thing. That's the domino that, that, put, that, that, that was set in motion for me that put me down this path. Uh, it was that little Terrence Yeeke video. Go f share something like that. If you know it's somebody that has a short attention span in a three-minute video, is that, that's all you can give them to do? Share that. Uh, you know, get people moving uh, the way you can. But, you know, I, I just want to close this out on thank you to you, Richard, uh, and thank you to all of you guys out there uh, that have made all this possible and to keep going. And I appreciate all of you. And we are out.